Good morning, church. My name is Michael Kwong. I'm a member of the IGC, and it is such an honor and privilege this morning to stand here to share God's word with you. Today's text comes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. Here's the word of God. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. And that's the word of God. Last time we were together, we looked at chapter 1 of Haggai. We talked about the importance of having a biblical and right priority and some unhealthy spiritual condition that may result if we neglect such priority. Things such as making excuses for our rebellion, losing the ability to see things accurately and clearly, and having a false view of our relationship with God. Today, we will pick up from chapter 2 and look at God's second message to the people. It is a message of encouragement. Now, I think all of us will deal with discouragement in one form or another. We can observe a toddler trying to put a square block into a round hole, uh, and also maybe a teenager trying to swing the bat and missing the ball every time. Sooner or later, they get frustrated. Uh, on a more serious note, some of us may experience misjudgment by others. Uh, some people may say bad things about us behind our back. Uh, some people may launch a scandalous attack on our character and repeated rejections or maybe keep missing out on the promotion because of office politics. So there's various form of discouragement, and it could happen to toddler, to teenager, to grown-up adults. Now, discouragement comes about when one has to face what we call uncontrollable, undesirable, and unchangeable situation or person for a period of time. The emotion of discouragement can range from a mild irritation to a full-blown anxiety, anger, and depression. 
is a feeling of hopelessness and despair. It depraves a person's confidence, hope, and spirit. The person suffers from it will tend to give up easily and loses his or her joy of life. Now, Christians are not immune from this predicament. But the question we may be wise to ask when we find ourselves in this kind of situations are, how do we handle discouragement? Is there something good that can come out of it? And I think the most important question to ask is, how can I glorify God by overcoming my discouragement? Now, if we believe Romans 8.28 to be true, which, is, which it says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, and also if we believe man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, then we must come to a conclusion that discouragement is also part of that all things and serves that ultimate purpose, which is glorify God and enjoy him. Now, I'm going to just break down today's sermon into two points. Uh, Your bulletin should already have it printed out. The first point is God understands and cares about the discouragement we face in serving him, verse 1 to 3. And then the second point is we need to go back to God's word for strength and comfort when we are discouraged, verse 4 to 9. So let's start with point number 1. Now, God understands and cares means that he sympathizes with us. God understands us also means that he knows the what, the why, the depth, and the scope of our discouragement. And then he will act accordingly to help us. Now, based on today's text and some historical background that you can read up from uh, the book of Ezra, several potential sources of discouragement we can observe. First, rebuilding a temple is an enormous task, especially when the resources is very limited. Consider when Solomon built his temple, he employed 185,000 men. Today, the total men that went back to Jerusalem was 50,000. So you can see just by the number of people who works on the temple is the Solomon Temple is three and a half times or three times more than the number of people who went back to Jerusalem. So you can see the resources very limited. And there was not enough gold, uh, not enough wood, and so forth. And then they have to overcome all this overwhelming amount of work. Now just imagine the temple they started 15 years ago, lay ruined for this entire time. Nobody took the care to clear out the garbage, clear out the overgrown. Can you imagine? You have to clear out a 15 years of overgrown, overgrown? It's not a small task. And then on top of that, right about this time, there's various feasts and Sabbath to keep. So you don't have all the work days. So progress is slow. And on top of that, they have to face enemies attack. Again, going back to Ezra chapter 4 and 5, you can see the enemies attacked him. And they have to prevent, they have to, to, to defend themselves while they are working. And then there were internal pessimism, faulty expectation, wrong view of success. So there are a lot of issues 
they are actually dealing with, and the result is discouragement. But with God's grace, God sent prophet Haggai to bring a message of encouragement to the people. God knows and cares about their disappointments. And then we actually see the message uh, from, from the text that we just read. God called the leaders by their names. What does it mean? Well, it means that this message is very personal. He called them by name and also called to the people three times. God says, be strong. Uh, this simple phrase it does not come as an advice. It is an op- it's not an option. It's, it's, it's coming an imperative, meaning that you have to do it. Be strong. God is giving them a power charge, so to speak, and God wants to lift up their spirits. God wants to uh, want them to gather their courage and then step out of the silly disappointment and get back to work with proper attitude. Now, on the one hand, we can understand their frustration, but on the other hand, it is not an excusable frustration. There are such things as childish, unhealthy, unbiblical disappointment or discouragement. In fact, I might go as far to say that some discouragement can actually turn into sin very quickly if we do not manage it well. Now, childish or trivial frustration are just that, childish. Frustration over non-essential matters. Frustration over something uh, something like somebody keep using the wrong coffee mug in your office, or someone kept finding the toilet seat is not in the correct position or the one that you desire when you go use it. Now, these are trivial things. We should not... Get frustrated over trivial things. Christians should not get frustrated over trivial things. Only a child or children do. Now, unhealthy and unbiblical frustration, we need to spend a little time on that. These are the frustrations rooted in incorrect biblical view and motivation, such as self-pity and pride and lack of faith. So what is the root cause of the Jews' frustration and discouragement? I can sum it up like this. They are frustrated because they focus on the external and temporal instead of the spiritual and eternal. Now, did God fill Solomon's temple with glory because it was big and it was covered with gold? Obviously not. How much gold do we need to exchange for God's presence? Well, there's not enough gold in this world to do that. If you read the book of Revelation, you would notice one thing. In the future, God will use gold to pave the road. That's how much gold he has. Okay. In verse 8, God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. What does it mean? That means that I own all the silver, I own all the gold. If I want to fill this temple with gold, I can do that. I can do that. Okay, so God filled Solomon's temple with his glory because he is a good God, not because this temple is grandeur, covered with gold, and because he's a promise keeper. God promised that he will be their God and they will be his people. God desires to dwell with his people. But there's one condition. If God were to dwell among them, the people would have to be sanctified. 
They would have to live according to God's law. Sadly, they failed. The nation sinned against God's holiness continually. So God left the temple. God's glory left the temple. And eventually, the temple was destroyed. Now, the original condition was not notified with the destruction of the temple. It still applies to the second temple, the one that they are building now. If the Jews were to have any hope of having God's glory to fill the temple again, the temple would, they must restore not only the temple, but their spiritual condition and consecrate themselves to God once again. It is important that they understand why they lost the first temple to begin with. For years and years, the people provoked God's wrath by worshiping idols, doing unrighteous, unholy things, and refused to repent. Take time to read Ezekiel chapter 8 to 11. In these chapters, you will find verses that tell a very tragic progress. In Ezekiel chapter 7, God tells them that he will turn the temple over to the Gentiles and let them profane it. In chapter 8, Ezekiel, in a vision, sees all the elders worshiping idols in their secret rooms. In other words, they have two faces. They have a pious face and they have a secret face. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God tells us the glory of God gone up from the cherubim on which it rests to the threshold of the house. What does it mean? That means that the glory of God begins to move. Move from where? From the Holy of Holy to the front door of the temple. And then in chapter 10, then the glory of Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lift up the wings and mounted from the earth before my, before my eyes as they went out. What that means? What does that mean? That means now the Spirit of God or the glory of God moved from the front door of the temple away from the temple. And finally, in chapter 11, the, temp, the, the glory of God has departed the city altogether. All so there was a process of the glory of God departing the temple. And so is our condition. If we do not consecrate ourselves, if we keep sinning against God, his glory will slowly depart. So once the glory has departed, the temple is no longer a temple. It's only a building. All the worship gone inside is no longer a worship. It's only human religious activity. So what is the reason behind Israel's frustration and discouragement? The temple is too small. Verse 8, God says, they see it as nothing in their eyes. This is how God sees them. This is how God understands the frustration is. They see the temple is so little. It's nothing. Their eyes are fixated on the external things. Big and grandeur. They are still ignorant of the fact that God destroyed the first temple was because of their sins. It doesn't matter how big the temple is or how grandeur it is. God wants a sanctified people and a holy people, not a magnificent temple. They should be discouraged over their poor spiritual condition, not over a small temple. 
God does not despise a small temple. He despises unholy people and unrepentant sins. So what's the lesson for us 21st century Christians? I think from this background and the story we just discussed, uh, discussed, I think the lesson for us is we should be discouraged or saddened over our inability to handle life issues and not over the life issues themselves. Our inability to handle life issues is a major problem, and oftentimes our eyes fixated on the things and the issues themselves and fail to see why I am not able to handle these things. I've heard many, many pastors preach before, and many of them have one observation that I agree 100%. Today's Christians, actually today's people, all, you know, in general, including Christians, seems to have, have a very small shoulders. They collapse under a little bit of pressure. And I observe that, and I agree with that. All right, let's move on to another hidden problem with their discouragement, pride. Again, they see this temple as nothing in their eyes. In another word, if they were building a big, magnificent temple, just like the one Solomon built, then they would have no problem working on it eagerly and with great energy, right? They're frustrated because this, this temple is so small, so tiny, so insignificant. They decided that the worthiness of the project is based on physical and material value, and since they are not working on a magnificent temple, they lose their interest. This is human pride to the core. In the lesson on suffering, Elizabeth Elliot gave an all-encompassing definition on suffering, and she says, I quote, Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have, unquote. Now, I would say that's pretty much true for the subject of discussion today as well. Frustration is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Sinful human desires are often the cause of our frustrations, whether it's in something that you want or something that you don't want. We should examine our frustration and discouragement because not all of them are healthy. Allowing unhealthy discouragements to run its course, sooner or later, it will become a debilitating force which drains us of our spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical strength. As we grow and mature in Christ, I think we should aim to avoid being frustrated over unhealthy and childish things. Watch our emotions, watch our motives, Focus on Christ alone. Yes, sometimes discouragement is a form of attack from Satan. But oftentimes, it is a self-induced sentiment from our wrong desires. If we don't control it, it will turn into sin quickly. But in either situation, God can redeem any discouraging circumstances and bring blessing to a person who is discouraged at as that individual seeks God for deliverance. The biggest benefit of suffering through a time of discouragement is that we, it confirms our need for God. 
This will bring us to our second point. We need to go back to God's word for strength and comfort when we are discouraged. In time of discouragement, do we look to men and worldly wisdom for help, or do we rely on God and the scripture? The scripture is sufficient to fix all our problems. Now, some people don't agree with that, but I disagree with them. I believe the scripture is sufficient to fix all life problems. When we are discouraged, we need to go back to God's word for strength and comfort. We need a fresh encounter with God's word. Now, you may have read, you may have read certain passages a hundred times. It never dawned on you. It never, it never clicked. But in time of despair, somehow God will bring you to certain passages and it will enlighten you. It will help you. It will strengthen you. Consider Psalm 19, verse 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Wow. Is there anything you can escape from that? Any life situation can escape from these three verses? No, I don't think so. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 2 Peter 2.3, his divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Searching outside of God's word for answer is well, answer to life issue is a wasted effort. We need to go back to God's word and hear God speak to us in our particular circumstances through his word. Now, from today's text, we noticed God's message of comfort has three aspects, the past, the present, and the future. First, the past. Verse 5, I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. The you is the collective you. It means the nation of Israel, past and present. God promised to be with the people because he is a promise keeper. He promised that he would go with them in the past, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to David, and then to the kings, and then to the exile, and then now returning to Jerusalem. Yes, the Jews experienced God's punishment but not abandonment. God is saying that, look at the history. Did I not keep my promise? The covenant that God made with Abraham was a blood covenant. What does that mean? It means that God would be cursed if he failed to fulfill his side of the promise. I think one of the most remarkable stories that exemplify the covenant faithfulness of God is recorded in the book of 2 King, chapter 18 and 19. The king of Assyria sent his massive army to attack Jerusalem. Upon hearing this, the king of Judah, Hezekiah, tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord and prayed. 
To make a long story short, God answers King Hezekiah's prayer, and he sent his army of angels to struck down the Assyrian army, all 185,000 of them, over one night. In chapter 19, verse 34, listen to what God says. God says, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. It's not because they are holy. For my own sake. And for the sake of my servant David. That means his covenant. Meaning that the covenant that he made with David. This is covenant faithfulness. God is a promise keeper. Now, is your problem as big as the 185,000 army? God can take care of you. The present aspect. God says, I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Verse 4 and 5. Now, the Jews may have feared a hostile, hostile enemy against them, but God is the Lord of hosts, the supreme ruler over all the armies of heaven and earth. Six times, God declares himself as the Lord of hosts. Now, if the Lord of hosts is with us, who can defeat us? If we are serving him, then nothing can happen to us accidentally or without his express permission. The assurance of his presence should lift our discouragement and enable us to press on. The term fear not is another way to say be strong. The phrase my spirit remains in your midst is another way of saying I am with you. This double parallel, double assurance reinforces God's promise and faithfulness. So if the Lord is with you, who can against you? Listen to these passages, John 14, 16. John, uh, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Matthew 28, 20, during the, uh, uh, the issue of the uh, Great Commission, Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Doubting God's presence is a direct challenge to his sovereignty and faithfulness. So Christians, it is wise for us to remember what James says in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And now the third point, the future aspect. God gives or God gives a prophecy as an encouragement to the Jews. Now, prophecies are about the future things, but one thing we need to remember, prophecy about the future are not given for us to speculate what may happen, but to strengthen and encourage our faith. God often gives us hope in the form of prophecy. Hope is one of the greatest motivations in life. Without hope, people will fall into deep despair and depression. God is trying to tell the Jews that the significance of the current temple cannot be measured by its size 
or grandeur. This temple they are building may be small in size, but it will be the most glorified temple ever. Now, this temple is recorded in verse 6 to 9. There is not enough time to expound this prophecy in detail. I'm just going to touch on it on two points, the temporary fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment. The prophecy broke down into several parts. In verse 6, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry and the, uh, and the dry land. Verse 7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Verse 7b, and I will fill this house with glory. And in verse 8, the silver is mine and gold is mine. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace. Now, I'll talk about a partial fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment. The partial fulfillment, we could look at it in just one point here. The treasures of all nations shall come in. This could probably point to the fact that King Cyrus and Darius, their edicts about uh, the cost of the building, the cost of the temple, directly will come from the national treasury. That could be the partial fulfillment. But I'm not interested in that at this point because due to the time factor. I will just concentrate on the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment about this particular house is actually pointing to Christ and the church. It's pointing to Christ and his second coming. First, I want to observe a few things. I'll share with you a few things. First, the language used in verse 6, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. This is an imagery of end time final judgment. You can find such description or similar description in Job chapter 9, Psalm chapter 18, Isaiah chapter 2, Jeremiah 51, Ezekiel 38, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and Revelation 6, so forth. If you can't catch that, you can give me an email. I'll send you that those texts later. Mm-hmm. Second, the scope of the shaking is universal. It covers heaven, earth, sea, dry land, and all nations. So, so the language is talking about a universal. The entire earth is covered under this, this shaking. The Bible only mentioned one such shaking, and that is at the end time. And we don't see that happening during the second temple or the Herod's temple. Third, in regard to the word treasure, this word can translate it into desire. In some scholar, some, some, some translation actually use the word desire. Now, if we take it to mean treasure, we already talked about the partial fulfillment, the treasure coming from the national treasury. But in either case, the part that can be explained that the future fulfillment the king of the earth will bring their glory into it. This particular phrase comes from Revelation 21. So if we were to interpret this word into desire, so that could mean that the desire to be with Christ from all the elects all over the world so they can bring the glory and honor to Christ meaning that they submit under the Lordship of Christ and give him all the glory and honor. Fourthly, this temple will be more glorious than any of the previous temple. And in it, we get peace. Now, we cannot take this sentence and break it into two parts. Okay? The temple will be more glorious, and then in it, we will get peace. It has to come together. 
this peace, I believe, is not just without war. Or we, you know, no longer have war going on. That kind of peace. No, I think it's pointing to pointing to the peace with God, the ultimate peace. Peace with God means that our relationship with God is restored, and that can happen when we are saved and adopted into God's family. So clearly, this house or the temple is referring to Christ. And all the saints are adopted into God's family and enjoy the real internal peace in Jesus Christ. And finally, I will read a portion from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun and moon or to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its Lamb is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no light there, no night there. There will they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing under unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb spoke of life. I think this passage sums up this, this particular uh, prophecy neatly, that in the house, the house referring to the Christ. And since Christ is the head of the church, it can also mean that this house is the church, the true church, the one church, the church that Christ died for. So our hope is in Christ, whom we will be having our temple in him, and we'll find all honor and glory and peace. In conclusion, I would like to say, Christian, we need to grow toward maturity. And there are things that we need to watch out on this particular subject. Do not get frustrated over trivial things. Do examine why we get frustrated and identify the root cause. Do not rely on our own efforts to resolve frustration, discouragement, and anxiety. Do look to God and his word for comfort and strength. The God that declared, I am with you, to the Old Testament saints is the same God today. He is saying, I am with you now. All God's children who are in need will receive God's care and comfort. So church... Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, Psalm 55-22. Remember that God is our source of comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And as far as physical need is concerned, God has made a commitment to supply all of our actual needs. Listen to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So for application, let me leave you with several questions for you to contemplate. 
Do you regularly examine your frustrations and discouragements? Are you, or are they, childish or unbiblical frustrations? And most importantly, are you glorifying God with the way you are handling your discouragement? Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we get frustrated way too easy. We get discouraged over every little thing. We don't look to you for comfort and strength. Help us regain our vision to build the house of God while we look forward to Jesus Christ. In him, we have full view of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.